Welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Hey everybody, this is Greg Larkin from the Mile 99 interview series, and I wanted to uh, welcome you tonight. We're joined again by my co-host, Jessica Harris. Hey guys. And Mike Turner, and we're still waiting for him. He's out in the field, but he'll be joining us shortly. Uh, This is our second episode of our new series within our normal podcast episodes, and it's called Rebecca Red Lion's Cancer. Uh, If you've listened to the first episode or the trailer, the whole idea behind this is that we've uh, reached out to a hiker that lives in New Hampshire. Her name is Rebecca Sperry, and she was working on a a large hiking project in the New Hampshire White Mountains. It's called a redlining project where you hike every trail mile uh, that's in the guidebook for the White Mountain National Forest. And she had started this in 2020. And as you may have heard in our first episode, uh, she ran into some issues initially with the pandemic, had to restart, and then unfortunately was diagnosed with breast cancer in August of uh, 2020. Uh, So she's temporarily sidelined on that project, but has continued to uh, get miles in. She's going through chemotherapy at this time and also still out there working on the treadmill, working on climbing 4,000 foot mountains in New Hampshire and other mountains in New Hampshire, and really just kind of um, keeping herself in shape until she has the time to get back to her project and other projects that we've started to talk about. We're into our second episode here, and we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into some of the other aspects of her life. And I just want to welcome her tonight. And how are you doing tonight, uh, Rebecca? I'm doing great tonight, actually. Um, I just got my, well, this afternoon I came home, um, finishing up my seventh round of chemotherapy. So I am over halfway now, um, and feeling really good, not tired at all. Thankfully, uh, that was probably due to the steroids that are coursing through my veins. Um, but yeah, feeling really good and looking forward to talking with you guys tonight. That's great. Yeah. I know that the last time we talked, I mean, there was a little bit of, of an issue. I think you said you were starting to have some kind of mental side effects, forgetfulness, things like that. Have those things improved a little bit? Yeah. So the interest, well, the the last round of of chemotherapy that I went through, I ended up getting it a day early because of Thanksgiving. Um, So I got, because I got it a day early, I got an extra day before having to have it again this week, which means I had eight days in my last cycle instead of uh, seven. And I think part of the reason I feel so good is because I had that extra day to recuperate more from the last chemotherapy round. Um, so I feel really like I feel normal right now. I don't feel the way I typically feel, which is like foggy brain and just stumbling over my words a little bit and not quite fully capable of coming up with fluid sentences that are cohesive sometimes. Um, so I'm feeling much more um, with it and not tired at all, really. Well, that's really good to hear. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I knew about some of the side effects of chemotherapy in terms of, you know, I mean, obviously like the, you know, the very visible side effects that people are familiar with hair loss and, you know, other perhaps physical issues, but yeah, I really hadn't heard too much about the mental side of things. So it's, it's good to hear that from you and just to help people understand that it's a, it fully affects your body in so many different ways. Yeah. And each different one, they, um, each different kind of chemotherapy drug, it targets different parts. So because 
I'm on a specific type of drug that targets certain systems. So the, the blood, your blood cells, your gastrointestinal, your, um, I'm blanking on it guys. Oh, your hair. I'm sorry. Your skin and hair. So that's why you have those side effects. So your hair falls out because the hair cells are being targeted. You have an upset stomach and you feel sick and you can get mouth sores and things like that because it's targeting your gastrointestinal and killing those cells. And you get the blood cell part is what makes you foggy. And it's called chemo brain where you just, you just feel like you can't put you can't get your mind to work the way you want it to work. Um, I kind of, I feel like it's almost like when you have a really bad cold and you have that medicine head feeling where you can't really get your brain to clear up and you just feel out of it. It's like that, but more intense. Hey, and so Mike has just shown up from his job site down in Santa Barbara. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Hey guys, good. Good to be here. Sorry I was late. It was working. Rebecca, it's always good to see you. It's good to see you too. I'm glad that you're here. Yes, I'm, I'm glad as well. So uh, one of the things that we alluded to um, a little bit in the previous episode with Rebecca was going into kind of uh, details about some of the diagnostic work that she had done um, you know, during the process of, of going to her first few appointments, um, getting you know, uh, mammograms and uh, ultrasound and all of that. And, you know, we didn't fully explain all that. So we, we want to take a few minutes, Rebecca, and just kind of get a better sense of, you know, what was all involved and why it took so long and, and what the experience was like. Sure. So um, I actually have a post that maybe I'm not sure if it would be helpful if you link to it in the show notes that I literally outline every day. Um, that something happened throughout the diagnostic and the whole process all the way until current. So um, I did this for me kind of, and also for other people so that they can see just how much goes into this. So on August 12th, my husband found a lump in my left breast. I didn't think it was anything, but I also felt odd about it. Like just didn't feel right in my mind. So I reluctantly made an appointment a few days later to see my primary care on August 17th, I went in at 9 a.m. to see the nurse at my primary care, and she did say that it did feel like she wanted to have it checked, which was not what I really wanted to hear. And I started crying, so I think she felt bad <laughs> for me, um, and she she um, expedited the appointment. And I ended up at the same day at 1 o'clock in the afternoon going to Elliott Breast Health Center to get my first ever mammogram at 37 so I went into the appointment and of course, never having done any of this before in my life and not really sure what to expect, had my first mammogram, which is very odd because you go into this room, get the procedure done, and then you go sit in this waiting room with a bunch of other women in these pink gowns where you're not wearing anything underneath to wait and see what the results of the mammogram are. So typically, if your mammogram comes back fine, you do not go any further. Unfortunately for me, um, the nurse came in and said she needed to do an additional mammogram, which raised a red flag for me. And it just got awkward from there. Um, it was really kind of quiet and awkward and just felt weird. She did the additional mammogram and then brought me in to get the ultrasound. And by the end of the evening was when I was told that I was um, that they suspected cancer, which I think I had outlined in the last episode. It was really kind of a really uncomfortable and awkward situation. And I was freaking out and not processing any of it. Had no clue what anyone was talking about. 
So fast forward two days later, I was getting a biopsy um, that there were two lumps in my left breast. I had the core needle biopsy done. And then on August 21st, so five days later, I received a phone call from the surgeon saying that there was confirmed invasive ductal carcinoma and ductal carcinoma in situ. So one one is cancer, the other one is precancer in my left breast, that they're awaiting a pathology report to verify the pathology of the tumors. That's important because pathology is what determines what your treatment plan will be. Then um, on August 26th, the day after my wedding anniversary, I went in to meet with the surgeon to review the pathology of my tumors. There were two and they both tested negative for the HER2 protein, which is a more aggressive form of cancer. Uh, They tested positive for both types of hormones, so estrogen and progesterone. The 27th, the next day, I met with a genetic test to get a genetic test done. So appointment after appointment, you know, my whole life's blowing up. I start grad school in two days amidst all of this. And then on August 30th, I ended up getting a contrast MRI to confirm or see if there were any other tumors. Unfortunately, there were two other tumors, one in my right and one in my left. And they had to do um, additional testing to determine what those were for um, diagnostics. So at this point, I was basically having a mental breakdown, (laughs) told them I was done going through all of this. I wanted to just get a double mastectomy and move on with my life. But after meeting with the um, plastic surgeon, I was very much swayed not to have a double mastectomy um, because of the amount of hiking that I do. It would be probably not a good choice because there would be very little skin between the breast implants and my pack. So the strap would essentially be at risk of rubbing me raw and me not knowing because I wouldn't have as much feeling there. So I wouldn't necessarily know that it was rubbing through my skin anyways. So I ended up getting um, that appointment and then I went in and had the uh, MRI guided biopsy on both breasts. This was a very uncomfortable procedure, but at this point I was just done going through the whole diagnostic process. I just wanted the cancer out of me and I didn't care what else I had to go through. I just wanted it done. So on September, let's see, September 10th, I had my MRI guided biopsies. And then on September 14th, I had a pre-appointment with the plastic surgeon. And on September 15th, I had an appointment with my primary care because I also ended up getting ring, <laughs> ringworm for the first time in my life. Had to get on a prescription for that. September 16th, I had my pre-op appointment with the surgeon. And September 17th, I had 30 days after having my diagnosis, um, basically, I got a partial mastectomy and reconstruction surgery. So that's kind of my diagnostic process in a very short splurt of information at everybody. I had a month of recovery and appointments throughout that to meet with the um, oncology department, to find out the actual pathology of all of my tumors, which were removed. They removed a pound of a pound of tissue, um, two lymph nodes in one side and one lymph node in the other, my left nipple, and I had the reconstruction done and everything. So it was a major surgery and I was in there under anesthesia um, for about six and a half to seven hours, I believe. So, and I ended up going home the same day. So it was a pretty, pretty aggressive surgery. And you went home the same day. That's yeah. unbelievable. 
I actually was really, really adamant about wanting to do that because it would have cost me more money <laughs> out of it. My insurance wouldn't have covered the cost if I had to stay overnight. It would have come more, it would have been more, more of a cost out of pocket, I should say. Yeah. And I don't want to stay in a hospital. I'm not a fan. No, I mean, it's hard enough going to a hospital these days with the pandemic, but yeah, I mean, the, the less exposure you have, I, I guess it's the, the better, but how was it like returning home that soon after such a major surgery? I mean, how, how did it go for a day or two after or, or more? So the beautiful thing about this was they have this drug called Exparel, which is a, it's lidocaine, I think. Um, it's a slow act, um, slow release um, numbing agent that they put into the wounds and lasts for 96 hours post-surgery. I had major surgery, which I kind of outlined and not any pain except a little bit of almost feeling like raw in your armpits from the removal of the lymph nodes. It makes you feel like your skin's been rubbed raw, but you're not in like a significant amount of pain. I ended up not having to take anything except Tylenol. And I only had to take that for a few days. Well, I guess that's a, a good thing that, I mean, they've really worked on the pain management technology in the last, you know, however long decades or, or whatever. That's, that sounds better than I expected, um, you know, yeah. after a major surgery. I was actually really, really good about following doctor's orders for once because my goal was not to have to take painkillers because unfortunately what I had to be prescribed because I can't handle some of the like more mild painkillers. I had to be prescribed like this really hardcore one called um, hydromorphone, which is basically the nurse at the hospital as well as the um, prescription person at the pharmacy said she should, told my husband, you know, she should not be taking more than half of a pill of this because it's pretty intense. It's like one step down from morphine, I believe. So my goal was not to take it. So that's part of, I think, why I didn't take it also. Yeah, sounds like a good plan for sure. There's lots of risks, I guess, you know, once you get into the, you know, opioids and, and all of that, yeah. and uh, your body's dealing with a lot, you know, after a surgery like that. Well, yeah, definitely appreciate you going into that and kind of giving giving people kind of an insight into what you went through. Just quickly, before we move on to some other topics, is that kind of a, a normal time frame for a diagnosis like this? Or did you feel like this was extended uh, more than normal? No. So surprisingly, um, I think it was about normal. It took about a month to go through the whole process um, once you have the surgery. So basically, because I have a lot of breast tissue, I was really and also very adamant about not wanting to have chemotherapy. I did not have what, what is called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is done prior to surgery to shrink the tumors. So they have to take less tissue. I did not want to do that, or I was never even offered. It was not brought up. Um, they just chose instantly to have surgery for me, which I've discovered through talking to a lot of women going through this, that that's not typically the route. It seems like most women get neoadjuvant adjuvant, um, chemotherapy. Um, but yeah, it's usually about a month. I mean, the thing that's, that's what kind of surprised me, I think a lot about this was I thought it would be, you know, typical quick week or so of you know, diagnosis, but no, it took forever. I mean, it was like very nonstop appointments. I had, I think over 25 appointments within the first month. It was just not, there was nothing else going on in my life, but appointments seemed like, or procedures. Uh, just an incredibly grueling period of time, I'm sure. And, you know, the mental aspect of it, I can only imagine. Um, hopefully, 
you know, given your drive for hiking and other things in your life, you know, I'm hoping that that kind of got you through that period, although I can only imagine how difficult it was. Yeah, unfortunately, at that point, I was so mentally overwhelmed. And like, I was in grad school still too. Like I had said earlier, I was taking one class, I think at this point, I didn't really end up doing a lot of hiking before surgery, because I just didn't want to leave my spouse or my mom, I wanted to be around people because I was so upset all the time, um, and overwhelmed. And I couldn't think of anything else, but the fact that I was going through this really awful thing. And it was just nonstop bad news for about a month. I genuinely think that the worst part of the whole entire process of cancer is the diagnostic process because you just don't get a break mentally from bad news after bad news. It seems like. Well, certainly glad you got through that period and are, you know, now talking with us and things seem to be going really well. So that's, that's a positive for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I know that. Yeah. So mentioning grad school, I mean, we do want to talk about some of the other things you've been doing. So Rebecca, you talked about having this really hard month. When did you start, when did it kind of um, come up that you were going to start talking about it on social media and kind of being who you are now, which is someone who has a lot of followers who want to hear about your story? When did that start for you? Actually, it started before I even got diagnosed. Um, I've always been really public and I guess maybe brutally honest or something. I don't really have a filter. (laughs) Um, When it comes to me on my life, I tend to be pretty open about it on social media. Um, I was in the process of going through redlining and I ended up posting uh, a couple of articles that I had written on my website the day after I believe that, or the couple of days after I got, I had that first appointment, I posted a post about how I was going to have to be postponing redlining for possible cancer. And I put it on the redlining Facebook page and I believe the other one as well in my own account. And then from there, it just, I've always just been the same from the beginning sharing about this, which is something that I think I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. I didn't realize cancer was supposed to be a secret. And I think that's one thing that maybe that's different than most people. I'm not sure. It just seems like it shouldn't be something that I'm hiding. So why would I hide it? And so that's why I've just always been so open about it, I guess. And I think a lot of people will benefit and have benefited from that. Even if they're not going through cancer, they're going through something that maybe feels like a secret, but shouldn't be. And people are talking about it. And I think that's so relatable to everyone. Um, Yeah. And so you were talking about, you said two days before school started, you were going through all of this. And then during you were in one class, which is grad school is a big deal. So what are you going to school for? How long is your program? Give us all the deets. Okay. So I left a uh, career in education. I have a master's in education already. And I was a uh, special educator for almost a decade through public schools up here in New Hampshire. And I decided this past year, I was going to finally pursue this passion that I've always had of wanting to become a writer. So I decided I'd apply to grad school and I got into the um, master's program for writing at my local university. The plan was to start this year full time. And so uh, August 17th is when I had all my appointments that week. And the week after that, I started grad school and I had full-time classes. I had three classes. So I actually, the first, I think two weeks through the diagnostic process, I was actually in three grad classes. Um, And I will say, having already done a master's, 
these classes were a lot harder than a master's in education because they're writing classes. The expectation is that you're reading and writing a lot. Like I think my first week I had over 500 pages I had to read and it just became insane and I knew I could not do it. The other thing that I'm kind of secretly, I guess, or working on as well is because I already have a master's, I want to get, I also would like to go for a a doctorate in composition. So my ultimate goal was this first semester, I would take three grad classes. I'd be in my MFA program. I would ask the professors for recommendation letters and apply to the doctoral program this winter, and then hopefully get in for next year. Unfortunately, because I got this diagnosis, I had to drop down to one class. I ended up choosing to take the doctoral level class um, that I was in because I wanted to see what it was like. So I've been in a doctoral level composition class for the last 15 weeks or so, which has been pretty tough, especially since I have zero background knowledge in the content at all, um, coming from a completely different background. But it's gone pretty well, surprisingly. Uh, The professor's been very um, understanding and accepting and totally willing to work with me going through chemo for about six weeks of the class. So it's gone pretty pretty well, considering I've only had to miss one class, and that was because I had surgery the day before. That's incredible. <laughs> only missed one class. <laughs> yeah, I had one class where I was really just not feeling good, so I asked if I could just listen and not participate, really, and I, she was totally understanding. We have, um, because of COVID, we're in class online, so it's a lot easier. Yeah. And so the program itself will be, so my plan for next semester is to take one more MFA class, I'm still not sure yet about applying to the doctoral program this winter or if I'm going to wait a year. But right now, next semester, I'm taking one MFA class, um, which is, I'm sorry, a master's in fine arts and writing, which is my current program. And then next year, I would go full time in in that program if I do not apply to the doctoral program. And so what is your what's the final goal? What's your career goal after this? That's a really tough question. (laughs) It is, huh? (laughs) Well, so it's very tough too because everything's just changed in my life. So originally, I want to write. I want to be a writer, and I want to be forced. Apparently, I need to be forced to write a book. I have, um, which is when you do when you do MFA in writing, you you write a um, book. That's your final project. It's a publishable manuscript. So this was kind of my way of forcing myself to write a book. Originally, the book would have been about hiking. Um, now I probably will switch topics a bit and incorporate some of this into it. Um, but I do really like writing research and I like doing scholarly work. So that's why I am interested in the doctoral program, because that is something I'm also very interested in. I, I think, honestly, if I could be a full-time student my whole life, that's what I would do for a career because I always, I just, I love school and I love learning. But I would say my career goals are a little bit up in the air right now, simply just because of this whole process and everything that's kind of coming out of it. I have a friend who just started a website of her own. Um, She's a hiker and I'm writing for her now as well, because I thought it would be fun to add that to the list of things that I'm doing. So I write for her. It's just for fun. It's not paid or anything like that, but it's another thing I can add to my portfolio. So that, yeah, I just, I like to be busy, but I don't know what my career goal is, I guess. That's fair. You have some time. (laughs) (laughs) The good thing is, is if I get into the doctoral program, it's a five, uh, four year, um, your tuition is fully paid and you are employed as, um, by the university and you're given a, a stipend. So 
I would be working for the college while in college, which would be awesome. Wow. That's, uh, you know, listening to all of those polls, you are exactly the kind of person we love to talk to here. Just <laughs> so many, just taking big bites of life, you know, rather than just taking little bites and trying this and trying that, just going out and taking big bites. So just a master's degree, having a master's degree, and then going back for a doctorate. On top of that, you know, your, your outdoor goals, you know, it, it's a lot to do every day. And then with this diagnosis, I'm sure all these things you have going on, there are days where you just, like you talked about, where you just, it's just like a yuck day. Mm-hmm. You have all these goals. How do you balance mind and your desire to do all these achievements, but you just, some days you're just not up to it? I think knowing how my, how I feel, um, kind of reading my body and sort of, I think being in special ed helped a lot for my own process because I learned how to, through that job, I learned a lot about um, sort of developing a routine for other kids. Well, I had to develop a routine for myself. And so I knew after the first week, I kind of analyzed how I felt and I determined, okay, well, these days are going to be bad days. I need to plan ahead for that. Here's what I'll do. And so I purposely, I kind of really planned out my whole life around chemotherapy. And um, so far it has worked really well. I get my schoolwork done um, when I'm not feeling as out of it. Um, If I don't feel like garbage, I take those moments and I harness them and I do as much as I can in them. So I might feel okay on a day three, which is typically a bad day. And if I do, I take that time and I get on a treadmill or I pick up my stupid schoolwork and work on that. I try to, every time there is a moment where I feel good, I harness it instead of just like laying on the couch and watching TV and saying, well, I'm just going to lay here. Um, I try to use every moment that I have where I don't feel like garbage because there's so few of them. And the longer you go through chemo, the more the fewer days you have where you feel good. So I'm at two days now a week where I feel good, where I feel uh, slightly normal. So I really have to focus on getting things done on those days. Like for example, Monday of this week, I spent nine hours writing my research paper that's due tomorrow as a rough draft. And it was hard. The first hour I wanted to go to sleep. I was not there yet mentally, but I had to get it done. So I sat there and said to myself, well, you've been tired before and you've pushed through it. You're going to push through it now because you need to push through it. And I did, and I got it done. So I guess it's kind of, you, you have to harness what you have. Yeah. That's just uh Deppy. It's just very inspiring to, to hear how you can really maximize your, your days. And I mean, just trying to go to school, that's enough. And then on top of that, you, I mean, your love for the outdoors, it sounds like getting to know you is one of the things that really is, is very valuable to you, like education, the outdoors. So I want to kind of jump into a little bit of these, some of these things. I follow you on Instagram and last week or this week you were, it looked like so frosty and snowy up there. I want to chat a little bit about some of these hikes you've been on this week. The, what is it pronounced? And I'm from California. So cut me some slack. Mount Musaliki. It's Mount Musalaki, but you're very close. So, um, yeah, so I uh, decided on Sunday, I didn't feel very good. Sunday's a day five. So I typically am starting to feel bad on day five still. I decided to go on a hike anyways. And 
it got me through that fog. And I'm going to be honest, I talked to my nurse today and she said, a lot of people won't push through that and you push through it, you'll end up being less foggy. So that's exactly what I did. Um, I pushed through it. Um, I was less foggy and I ended up feeling much better on Monday, I think probably because of that. Sunday, I went on a hike, did seven miles almost. Monday, I spent nine hours writing a research paper. Tuesday, I did another hike. I did five miles. And then yesterday, I believe, yes, I did Mount Musilaki, which is a 4,000 footer um, in New Hampshire. 4,000 footers are our biggest peaks here. So they may not sound very tall to people out West, but for us, they are actually pretty rugged. This particular mountain is on the Appalachian Trail. And <clears throat> it is a, it was um, probably close to zero with the wind chill yesterday, hiking that mountain once you got above treeline. But that's not, that's normal, <laughs> I guess. For me, I hike through the winter typically, so it didn't bother me at all. Um, and it's really, for me, it's not a, a very difficult hike typically. It was... Um, think almost 10 miles because I had to do a road walk at the beginning of it. And it was, it was great. It was great to see that I could do this, even though I'm going through chemo and, you know, it wasn't easy. And I definitely physically felt not as strong as I had felt this summer. Um, but I, I, um, I attribute it to being out of shape because I haven't been hiking as much. I asked my doctor today and she actually said, because of my lower, um, blood counts, it can cause me to be more out of breath easier and more fatigued faster. So maybe it's because of the chemo. I felt a little weaker, but I was really excited to get up there and get to do that. Or maybe because it was zero degrees. Well, yeah, I mean, but the, the thing sand. is, <laughs> but like you're only in that temperature range for when you're above tree line, which is not very much of the trail. I want to say it was probably like a mile. Um, the rest of it, is all below tree lines. And once you get below tree line, it, it gets warmer. Plus you dress for it. I mean, I've been doing this now for four years and I know how to dress for it. Yeah. That's the trick is, is dress for it, but also mentally be ready for it and have the back, the background to know how to, when you come up with a challenge, how to get past it. And, you know, it's no different than racing or things like that, you know? So mm -hmm. you've been hiking for, you said four or five years. I started, I like to call 2015 my official start of really tr doing this like a, more on a regular basis. I only did 10 hikes that first summer, but yeah. And what was your, like your longest, your longest time, maybe like longest time on feet versus your longest distance? And were those the same or were those different situations where you had to slow down for some other reason? So, well, I've done some um, backpacking. So I did about 36 miles of the Appalachian, um, I'm sorry, of the long trail in Vermont, which took me, I ended up doing that over um, three and a half days. I did a 55 mile hike, which took me three days. But I would say I'm a typically a day hiker. So I, I don't, I have some backpacking experience, but for day hikes, my longest has been 24 and a half miles, I believe. And it was, I want to say maybe nine hours. Um, that's, I typically average about two miles an hour over the course of an entire hike, um, depending on elevation gain. And usually that's if there's like three to 4,000 feet elevation gain, if it was on a flat trail, it's going to take me a lot less time, but I'm not a trail runner. I am definitely not a trail runner, mostly just because I don't, I don't know if I don't want to be one because there's a lot of trail runners up here, or if it's just because I just choose not to. 
but I'm not, I, I don't consider myself a trail runner. I'm just a hiker. Well, yeah, the secret is those times that, that pace is the same as ultra pace. There's no, oh. <laughs> so a, that's a little secret we have, but uh, so that, I mean, those are some great, I mean, great. And back there is just so different than here. I mean, it's the cold. And of course, Greg knows about that kind of stuff, you know, those kind of long cold days. So what do you have on your, on the horizon of, as aside from masters and doctoral programs and as far as hiking, what do you, what's on your list? Well, I mean, I, I actually would say that New England is kind of where I'm, I'm living and sticking for now. I don't particularly like flying as in, I will probably have to be sedated next time I do it because <laughs> I don't like it. Um, so I tend to stick to New England. Um, my big project that is actually kind of coincides with my schooling is the Northern New England redlining, which is something I can finally start working on planning now that I'm almost done my grad class. Um, So that would entail redlining. And this is something I just decided on my own. It's not something that people have done. Um, Up here in New England, we like lists and we're very list oriented. And so hiking all of the trails in New Hampshire's White Mountain Guide is redlining, which is what I was originally working on for a project. And now I decided it would be fun to do a bigger one. And I decided to make up my own challenge, which is I'd like to try to hike all the trails in Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire. So that's kind of going to be a few year project that I'll end up hopefully taking on while I'm getting a degree. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's great. It's a great goals. It's great to set big, big life goals that take years to accomplish. It's really inspiring. Thanks. And I guess a follow-up question to that, has anybody to your knowledge done that redlining project? Definitely not that I know of, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if someone has, because we're really, you know how it is because you've lived up here. Um, there are some people out here that have done some pretty darn amazing things. I know there are people out there that are working on, and there are people who have redlined Southern New Hampshire's guidebook. That is a, a thing that exists. Maine and um, there was a girl actually that I follow on Instagram before she moved out west was working on redlining Maine. She had redlines New Hampshire. Um, and I don't believe, I don't know of anybody from Vermont or that has taken on Vermont as a redlining project. There is a thing called the, um, you can do the end to end, which is um, through hiking the long trail. And then you can do the side to side, which is hiking all the trails that come off of the long trail in Vermont. So there is those two particular things that people will do, but there are additional trails that are not on the long trail that are in other parts of Vermont that I would be incorporating into this challenge. Unbelievable. And let's just take it one step further and blow Mike's mind completely (laughs) and talk about what is the grid. Okay. So I am, I'm going to be, I am not a gritter. And the funny thing is, is I've had a lot of people ask me, are you going to do the grid? And I just have zero interest. So the grid is hiking every one of the 48 4,000 footers every month of the year, which would be 576 times you, or 576 um, summits. So you would hike Tecumseh, which is a mountain up here, and you hike it every month of the year. So you do it 12 times. And then you do that for all of the 48 4,000 footers. And actually people will even do the grid for New England. The New England 67, people will do the grid for the, the um 115 summits in from um, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Catskills, and um, 
the Adirondacks. So there are all sorts of challenges that go with gridding. Well, you know, one thing we, what we've learned is that when people say they will never do something, they're usually the first ones that end up doing it. I know. I, I, I might unintentionally do it. Like I keep track of all these lists, but there is certain lists that I'm very much intending on doing. And the grid has never been one that I'm officially going to sit there and try and do. And the reason why is because I'm very much a solo hiker and it doesn't feel like it would be a safe choice at this point in my hiking career for me to take on mountains like the Bonds, which are a 10 mile one way hike solo in the winter. So that's part of the reason I I don't see myself being a gritter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, having done some winter hikes up in the white mountains, having to do all of them like in every month of the winter is just a mind blowing uh, thought. Like I just can't even imagine. Um, yeah. And and people, I mean, are they like of any of the people, you know, have done the grid, like what time periods are we talking about that they're accomplishing something like that? Well, the grid, it usually, to be honest, the grid takes less time than redlining. There's more gritters than there are redliners. Um, There's less than 100 redliners. I think the number right now is around 64. In grids, there's over 100. There's hundreds, I believe, of people who have done the grid. Um, There's actually a guy that just recently did the grid in under a year, which can be done because he started at the beginning of July and ended at the I'm sorry, he started at the end of August and he be and he ended at the beginning of July. So he ended up gridding in under 12 months with a, the amount of days that accrued. So that was an FKT. He said, um, people do FKTs up here on things like this. He, there's a woman who did the grid in a year, calendar year. Those are the only two that I know that have done it in under, I have done it 12 months or under. I can't imagine that that, uh, you know, works well if you're fully employed. <laughs> That's yeah. a difficult thing to accomplish, right? <laughs> So the girl did not work and neither did the guy. He was, um, they both were very intentionally, you know, this was their goal. Mm-hmm. They weren't working. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great, great thing to kind of take on though, if you have the freedom to do that and have the ability uh, financially, I suppose, and, and other things in, in your life. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I guess if it's, you know, similar to somebody who decides like, hey, I want to hike the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or something, and they have that ability to take that time out of their life to do something like that. Maybe it's a similar type of mindset or or you're in a certain situation in your life where you have that ability. Yeah. Very cool. I uh, appreciate the uh, the explanation of all that stuff. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. Uh, This has been a great episode. I feel, you know, we really got a good look into kind of where you're at, some of the earlier things you had to go through diagnostic wise, uh, obviously an extremely grueling process, but like we talked about, I think your mindset is there to get through those kinds of hard times. And obviously you've come out of that part of it. You had to then enter into the treatment part of it and you're progressing through that as well. Um, and, And it sounds like just really, taking a lot of time, uh, to, to check in with yourself. You're still getting out there. You're, you're accomplishing big goals. I mean, it it was for me personally, as a, as an ex New Hampshire resident, seeing you on a mountain that I've been on before, I can like, I can picture you at the summit sign. And that Mm -hmm. me is such a, a cool feeling. And, and hopefully for other people that have been out in the white mountains and, and all of that, uh, just to see that I think is, is, is excellent. And, 
you know, we want to see you, you know, still doing those things. And I personally want to see you on other mountains that I've been on. So I can kind of picture you there. <laughs> so, so that's, just, that's great. Um, you know, as we go, uh, we're going to be releasing additional episodes. The next one that we're going to be talking to Rebecca about is, you know, kind of mental health throughout this whole thing. And, you know, hers, other people in her life, her husband, her mother, who have been like really primary supports for her throughout this whole process, because um, there's a lot that goes into, you know, the other people in somebody's life who, who has cancer, um, you know, they're there going through a lot of these same things, obviously not at the, you know, the, the, the level that she is, but, but obviously being affected by it. And we want to kind of dig into that as well and find out how it's been affecting them, you know, what they've been going through. Um, and I think that's going to be really good information for other people that might be in their situation supporting somebody with cancer or supporting somebody with, you know, really um, a chronic disease of some sort and, and just find out what it's like as a caregiver. So we'll be looking forward to recording those episodes uh, or that episode going forward and, and be looking for that on an upcoming Sunday at 5 p.m., which is our normal release time for our podcast with Rebecca. And Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much for, again, taking the time. I know this is something that really that needs to fit into your schedule. And we really appreciate you working around uh, with us to, to get it into your schedule. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'd say if anyone had any further questions or wants to read more about the diagnostic process and just all of that is on my website. I pretty much, I've written a lot of posts on there about everything I've gone through. Uh, every appointment I had, I I did a post on. So if there is people who want to know more about that, a lot of it's on there. Yeah, that's great. And, and you can find Rebecca's website at sockedinhikes.com. That's S-O-C-K-E-D-I-N-H-I-K-E-S.com. I hope I got that all right. <laughs> you did. That's perfect. <laughs> Jessica has given me the thumbs up on that uh, narration. And also uh, definitely check her out on Instagram, Socked in Hikes. Uh, we're going to, as we do, link all of this stuff into our uh, podcast episode show notes. Uh, and so to you know, keep up to date with everything that we're doing with Rebecca, please go over to Facebook and look us up on the Mile 99 interview uh, Facebook page. And you can also find us on the Mile 99 interview Instagram uh, page as well. So uh, we're really looking forward to future episodes with Rebecca and uh, hope everybody's enjoying that. So with that, we'll close up and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all on the trail. All right, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.